Many of you know we've been announcing it for a while, but we have a special guest with us today. He is no stranger to Clayton Valley Church. He is certainly uh, considered a dear friend of ours um, and a friend of our church family. His wife, Cindy, cannot be with us. We've, we've missed having her, but she sends her greetings as well. And um, we're very, very grateful for Randy Patton's ministry. Uh, come next April, he will be celebrating 50 years of vocational ministry. So yeah, praise God. And I, and I, I just, again, w- would praise God also for the fact that he is a man committed uh, to seeing how the word of God is used by God to change lives. And uh, we're, we're grateful to have a like-minded brother in that. Uh, there's a lot of churches around, but not all would hold to that um, truth that... Uh, that we want to rely on God's means for, for change and growth. And so we're really glad to have Randy with us. And I just want to say let's give him a warm Clayton Valley Church welcome. Well, I thank you, Pastor Chris, and uh, welcome to each of you. Thank you for coming. I, uh, I brag about your church as I go around... Uh, different speaking places and people ask me about my travels and things and I've been telling them about looking forward to coming to the North Creek training conference which is what brings me here and uh, Chris I usually uh, let Chris know the, if they've scheduled me again and I said now you've had me before there's no pressure for you to invite me again I've got other places I can go if they want me and Chris says no we want you and so I brag about this this has to be the longest suffering church because you've had me <laughs> Uh, preach so many times and I was telling my wife the other day I got to think you know I have preached more at Clayton Valley Church than any other single church since I left the pastorate and uh, I've traveled a lot of different places but I just keep coming back here so some would say you're gluttons for punishment but uh, but I enjoy coming here it's just wonderful I've looked forward to this so much uh, let me just say a word about um, uh, the, the uh, Biblical Counseling Training Conference at North Creek Church. This is an annual event. They're already announcing the dates and plans for next year. And uh, uh, anybody, you're, any of you could sign up and go to it. In fact, I'd encourage you if you haven't done it. And uh, for those of you that have our parents, you've got children 14 and older, I'd encourage you to take them, go to the fundamentals class. And uh, this year, there's 750 people attending. It's one weekend a month for three months in a row. And the premise behind it is that uh, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the teenager of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped to handle the issues of life and living. And... um, so the people that are coming come from all walks of life. There's over 100 churches represented. Uh, over 50 pastors uh, were there. And all of the people are interested in learning the Word of God, but then learning how it applies not just to their life, but they want to use the Scriptures to help other people. And that's the strategy uh, behind the training. And it's just wonderful. And um, I just encourage all of you to think about attending. The North Creek does a wonderful job hosting. And... Um, the, the, the speakers are people that are recognized leaders in the area of biblical counseling and biblical training, and it's just a wonderful time. And so I would uh, encourage you to think about participating in that um, next year. 
And then thank you again uh, for coming and being here uh, today. I'm just uh, thrilled with the attendance and thrilled to be back here at Clayton Valley. Well, this year, I, in, in this hour, I thought I would uh, speak to you on the matter of habits. And notice the title, Habits, Friend, and Foe. You know, does that make sense to you? Some of us have habits that are, we would say, are good habits and that serve us well. And most of us have habits that we feel like are working against us and we'd really like to, to change them. And that's where <clears throat> this um, title comes from. And um, what I wanted to do in this session is I wanted to show you some different parts of the doctrinal statement of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And in many ways, it's going to be very similar to your church's doctrinal statement. The difference is the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors is a counseling certifying organization. So it, its doctrinal statement will speak typically more uh, with more length at some points and more precision related to the issues related particularly to counseling and issues like that because that's the nature of the organization. So it would be, um, I, th I think, in accordance with yours, but it's just going to have some points of emphasis that the typical church doctrinal statement does not have. And I want us to think about this whole issue of habits because that's something every one of us in the room grapples with. And I want you to think with me about it from a theological belief. In other words, how does what we believe about different areas of theology affect developing good habits and maintaining them, and how does it affect dealing with bad habits and trying to change those, all right? So that's the strategy. We want to think theologically, and then we're going to apply what the, the, our theology to these issues of life. So with that in mind, uh, grab your notes, and if you don't have notes, there's some at the back. And what I want us to do, to, to first of all, is to think about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, so <clears throat> find your doctrinal statement, and then I'm going to read this just to keep us all together. But as I'm reading, what I would encourage you to do is to underline or highlight if there's different phraseology or different statements that you find particularly helpful, okay? So this is, again, from the ACBC Standards of Doctrine, and I've got the website address there, so you can go back. And this is not all of the doctrinal statement, but it's just parts that I want us to think about in relation to habits. So, <clears throat> uh, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. He exists as one person with two distinct natures, fully divine and fully human without any mixture of the two. He was born of a virgin. He lived his entire life on earth without transgressing the law of God, thus earning righteousness for his people. He suffered a violent death on the cross to pay for the sins of his people. He rose miraculously from the grave on the third day as Lord and Savior, demonstrating his victory over sin, death, and the devil. He ascended bodily into heaven where he reigns over all creation and he actively upholds and intercedes for his people as his bride, the church, awaits his glorious return. All right, 
let's move on. Think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And again, thinking about how does that relate to what we're going to be talking about in just a moment to the matter of habits. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the eternal and third member of the Trinity. He is the person who convicts of sin and who indwells Christians. He regenerates believers and empowers them to live the Christian life, to understand the scriptures, and to worship Jesus Christ. He is thus essential to the change sought in biblical counseling. He is the sovereign God who equips believers with gifts of service to do ministry in the church. He is the promised counselor who continues the work of the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. All right. Think with me now about the doctrine of man. God created man out of the dust and breath, excuse me, God created man and breathed life into him. Let me start over. God created man out of the dust and breathed life into him so that he became a living person. Human beings are made in the image of God and were created by him to be the pinnacle of creation. God made mankind in two complementary genders of male and female who are equal in dignity and worth. Men are called to roles of spiritual leadership, particularly in the home and the church. Women are called to respond to and affirm godly servant leadership, particularly in the church and home. God created the human person with a physical body and an immaterial soul, each possessing equal honor and essential to humanity. The Bible depicts the soul as that which motivates the physical body to action. These constituent aspects are separable only at death. The great hope of Christians is the resurrection of the body and soul in a glorified existence in the new heavens and the new earth. Man is by design a dependent creature standing in need of divine counsel to serve God and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Think with me now about the doctrine of sin. God created mankind in a state of sinless perfection. But the human race fell from this state when Adam willfully chose to rebel against God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since that time, every human being except Jesus Christ has been born in sin and separated from God. Every element of human nature is inherently corrupted by sin so that mankind stands in desperate need of the grace of God to be cleansed from sin by the Holy Spirit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Sin increases the need for all counseling as people seek ministry to resolve problems in living caused by their own sin, the sin of others, and the consequences of sin in the world. Now let's think about the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit where he transforms the hardened heart of a sinner 
into the soft heart of a believer who loves God and obeys his word. It is what makes the new life in Christ possible. Regeneration, along with the God-given gifts of repentance and faith, is granted solely by grace, resulting in the attendant evidences of our great salvation in Christ. And finally, number six in our outline, the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is a joint work between God and man, where God supplies grace for Christians to grow in obedience to Christ, while Christians are made holy in a definitive sense at conversion, it still remains for them to grow in holiness. This work of grace requires believers to utilize by faith <clears throat> the normal means of grace, such as Bible reading, prayer, thought renewal, and fellowship in the context of the local church. Christians will experience real progress in growing more like Christ, yet this work will be incomplete in this life. The work of counseling is fundamentally the work of helping Christians to grow in this grace of sanctification. Now, as we get ready to dive into the application of those things, what I'd like you to do is think for just a moment, each of you, and identify what is one of your good habits, a habit that's a friend. You know, if you're struggling, I'd say, I show up for Sunday school at my church, all right, because you're all here. hope that's a habit. But think, okay, what's a habit that would be a friend? And then think of a habit that's a foe that you'd like to see changed, all right? At first, I thought I was going to have you write them on the back of your notes, but I thought everybody would be looking to see what other people are writing down. It'd be a distraction. So, so just, just think about it, all right? So identify those. Now, with that in mind, let's think about this. What is a habit? And uh, the three aspects I'd like you to consider on this. A habit is a usual way of behaving. It's something that a person does often in a regular and a repeated way. It is an, it is an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. That's a dictionary uh, definition, all right? So it's just, a habit's just a way of, of behaving. Another definition would be this. A habit is a God-given ability to do things automatically, unconsciously, skillfully, and comfortably. Um, for those of you that are adults, do you remember when you first learned how to drive and what that was like? You know, all of that and all the jerking. And then for any of you who learned how to drive using a stick shift and all oh, the, you know, the jerking and everything. <clears throat> but for those of us who've been driving for any length of time, I mean, now, I mean, we're we can drive smoothly, we tune the radio, we can, on occasion, text illegally, and uh, yeah, you, don't, you don't do that in California, I'm sure none of you do that. So, But I mean, you just think about 
driving is an illustration of how something that once was so and so demanding of our focus on that and now we just drive and we can think and talk and do all kinds of things that's a little bit like what it's like see so i love this definition <clears throat> i got this terminology primarily from uh, some writings by jay adams uh, habits a god-given ability to do things automatically unconsciously skillfully and comfortably now think about it. that applies to both the habits that we view as friends but it also applies doesn't it to the habits that we view as foes just sometimes we just there i did it again yeah, just, I wasn't planning to do it, didn't want to do it originally, but we just find ourselves um, doing things even that we don't want to do or didn't hoping to change, but it's just automatically, unconsciously, skillfully we can, can do it. But it happens both with the good habits as well as the ones we'd like to change. Now, <clears throat> here's a <clears throat> third aspect to think about. What is a habit? Habits are thoughts motives and actions that can be habituated. Let me say it again. Thoughts, motives, and actions can be habituated. Parents, child care providers, friends, circumstances, and our flesh contribute to habit development. So this is why uh, for those of us those of you I'd say that are parents, particularly those of you that are raising younger children, those early years are so formative because in many ways we're teaching habits. And for many of us, the things that we would look at in our lives now that we would value as a good habit, many of those can be traced back to our upbringing. You know, like, like one habit that, has, uh, that I was taught as a child is that at the end of a meal... When you're done, you just grab your plate, your silverware, and your utensils, and you take those to the sink. And it's just way we all of us four kids at our house did. We just carried the stuff over there, and just became a habit. You know, it's just like it's no big deal. You just and that has continued. When we had uh, children, I mean, we taught our kids as they were young. I mean, early years when they just had. Well, they're just tykes, you know, and have plastic things. We'd have them take one thing at a time. But then as they grew and they got to the point where, you know, along the way, they got so they could just grab all their stuff and take it. It's become a habit now. I mean, it just happens to me just all the time. It's just normal. A while back, I was uh, speaking at a church, and afterwards I got to have a meal in somebody's home. And, uh, you know, we had a good conversation, enjoyed the meal and everything. And we all get ready to leave the table, and I just grab my stuff, start walking toward the sink, and the host says, oh, Randy, Randy, you don't have to do that, I'll get it. And I said, oh, no, I got to do this, or my mom would come out of her grave to come after me. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, you just, it wasn't even conscious. You understand what I mean? But that's the benefit, you know. Here, here I'm 74 years old, and I'm reaping the benefits of, of a good habit that was taught to me as a tyke. That's why I just say to you, parents, and then also to the grandparents who have the opportunity of influencing your children, the habits that can be taught early years, there are so many of them that will serve them well in life. All right? And a lot of us can look back, and um, some of the habits that we wrestle with now that we wish areas of our life that were different, 
we look back and think, you know, I wish my mom and dad had been harder on me about that one or later on. So the point is, our thoughts can be habituated, our motives can be habituated, and certainly our actions can be habituated. All right? Like one area that uh, I just would encourage you to think about. As a counselor, when I'm getting to meet people for the first time, most of the people who've come to me for counseling are professing Christians. And um, one of the questions I always like to ask as I'm getting to know people, I ask several questions to see if they profess faith in Christ. But I always like to ask, how many times did you read your Bible last week? I remember asking that to one old guy, and he says, you mean when I wasn't in church? And I said, yeah, when you weren't in church, how many times did you get around to reading your Bible last week? And then the follow-up question is, and how many times did you read your Bible the week before that? And the reason I ask that is I, I had come to the conclusion that for a lot of Christians, they're not reading their Bible much, but when they get in a crunch, when life gets hard, you know, they hunt around the house till they find their Bible, dust it off, open it up, start reading, looking for a blessing. All right. And so one of the pieces of information that I use to help me evaluate how I'm going to deal with a professing Christian, I'm trying to decide, okay, this person says they're a Christian, but am I going to be convinced they're a Christian? Or am I going to treat them as a non-believer until I am convinced they're a Christian? And so just find out about how important is the Bible to you is just a, a piece of information that I find to be helpful. Over the years, I've asked that question hundreds of times in counseling cases, and the numbers that I have been given most frequently are 0, 1, and 2, which I think is pretty pitiful for somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And um, years ago, I heard somebody uh, talking about the importance of reading the Bible, and he used a phrase that has stuck with me and that I personally follow. It was an area where I you know, used to read my Bible regularly, but hearing this phrase has helped me to develop the habit with a greater firmness. And here's the habit. I want you to think about it. No Bible, no breakfast. Say that with me, would you? No Bible, no breakfast. Now, you think about that, and that's my custom. I get up in the morning and get showered up, get dressed, and I do coffee. You notice it didn't say no coffee, no, bo- no breakfast. But <laughs> so uh, I get me my cup of coffee, and I go to my chair, and I read my devotions in a chair that uh, my granddad used to sit in, and I sit across from him and we would talk he was very influential in my life so I sit in my granddad's chair with my coffee on a warmer right there and I got my MacArthur daily bible that's what I like to use in my devotions not the study bible but the MacArthur daily bible it's a wonderful tool highly recommend it to you but just that little phrase no bible no breakfast is so powerful in developing a good a good habit and I'd encourage all of you to, to read your Bible at least five times a week. I mean, it's great if you read it seven, but uh, 
with people I counsel, my goal is to get them reading the Bible in a meaningful, systematic way at least five times a week. And the point is, you just have to start, and sometimes a little phrase like that can help you begin forming the habit and implementing it. So the point is, our thoughts can be habituated, our motives can be habituated, and certainly our actions can be habituated. All right, now, <clears throat> with those thoughts in mind, let's move on and talk now about how do you turn a foe into a friend? And we want to get some insights from the book of Ephesians. And what I would want you to do is take your Bible and turn to Ephesians 4. Our brother's got a question there. Yeah. So are you suggesting that we only eat breakfast five days a week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening carefully. I was just waiting to see if anybody's going to pick up on that. <laughs> uh, no, you can, uh, you can apply the teaching as you choose. <laughs> Good question. Okay, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And here's some wonderful thoughts, some uh, instruction to help us on the matter of habits. All right. Ephesians chapter uh, 4. All right, so we're in our outline, we're talking about how do we turn a foe into a friend. Number one in the outline on our sheet, justification involves the forgiveness of sins or being in Christ. That's the theme, the prominent phrase in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. So justification involves the forgiveness of sins, being in Christ, and leads to progressive sanctification the changing of habits and thoughts, motives, and actions, chapters 4, 5, and 6. The goal is to become Christ-like in all these areas. So, think, now grab your Bible and look with me to Ephesians 4, verse 1. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have talked about the multiple blessings that are ours in Christ. And then he says in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, look down at verse 15. Uh, it says, But speaking the truth and love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Uh, look at verse 24. It, verse 24 says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So uh, you look at the, the screen, Ephesians 4.1. I pray the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner... Worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, grow up into the conformity with Christ. Verse 24, uh, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And chapter, even chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So <clears throat> the book of Ephesians is six chapters long. It's naturally divided into two halves. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 talk about all of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And I would say to you, if there's ever a time when you find yourself a little, a little blue, a little down, and you need a spiritual pick-me-up, read thoughtfully and carefully Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And if you're struggling with identity issues, then read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and notice that you are, if you are a follower of Christ, you are in Him. That should be our identity. We are, we are Christ followers. And the hinge on which the book of Ephesians turns is chapter 
uh, uh, 5, chapter 4, verse 1, which says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If all these things are true about you, live like it. Here's how, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And chapter 4 talks about changing and growing to become like Christ. Chapter 5 talks about how being a follower of Christ ought to work out in husband-wife relationships. Chapter 6 talks about how being a follower of Christ ought to work out in parent-child relationships and employer-employee relationships. In other words, our faith in Christ, being in Christ, should impact every strata of, of society. So, um, justification involves the forgiveness of sins, being in Christ, and leads to progressive sanctification, the changing of habits and thoughts, motives, and actions. All right, moving on. Number two in our outline, we are to seek to put off the old self, the old man, which are the sinful habits that our corrupt nature adopted. They are strong, deceitful desires that control our thoughts, motives, and actions. Ephesians 4.22 says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So in the Bible, when it talks about the old self or old man, what it's referring to is that constellation of habits Attitudes, perspectives, responses that characterized our life B.C., before Christ. The old man, the old nature is just that, that way we handled life, approached life, talked, our motives, just that whole package of the way we handled life or approached life before Christ. And the scripture says we're to put it off. And part of that is just the habits, plural, Habits of thinking, acting, responses. The scripture says we are to put, put those off. Then, <clears throat> number three in our outline, we must seek to discipline our thoughts, motives, and actions so that godly habits are developed. Verse 24 says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What God is saying to us is, we have a personal responsibility to lay aside or put away from us those old deceitful habits of thinking, acting, motivation, so forth, that marked us before Christ, and we have a responsibility to put on new habits. And a word of hope for all of us in this regard is uh, God's commands assume God's enablement. That means for each of us in areas where we want to change, we think we ought to change, be more like Christ, we can change. God would not be the, the loving, merciful, kind, tenderhearted God that the Bible describes him to be if he would command us to do something, and we wanted to do it, tried to do it, but we just couldn't do it. That means change is possible for each and every one of us. And we have a responsibility to put off the old and to put on the new. The terminology there, put off and the put on, that same terminology was, is used elsewhere to talk about somebody who would like uh, fall down into a mud puddle and would go home and they would put off from them. They would take the clothes off. I mean, it's talking about a personal responsibility that we have to put off and to put on. This is significant, uh, for, especially for some people who have had a theological background where they were taught that our sinfulness is so bad 
that we we just can't do anything and we just it's all of God and we just need to let loose and let God. All right? That is unbiblical emphasis because the scripture is quite clear here as well as in other places we have a responsibility to put off and to put on in dealing with with our habits. All right, let's move on to number 4. Then <clears throat> a renovated mind is the key to changing habits. Mind is synonymous with heart, soul, and spirit in the New Testament. It is to be viewed as the center of thought, understanding, belief, motives, and actions. This is the real you that God sees and interacts with. Now, that's an important uh, paragraph. The mind is the key to changing the habits. And in the New Testament, the term mind is synonymous with heart, soul, mind, or heart, spirit. All of those are just synonyms. In our culture, sometimes there's a tendency to try to break those off, make them, interpret them as meaning different things. Uh, my understanding and study of the scripture leads me to think that, that all four of those terms are just synonyms. And we do something similar to what the writers of the New Testament do in how we will use terms in conversations that are just really synonyms. For example, uh, a while back, I was, I was a part of a, two or three of us guys were called together to meet with a, a Christian leader who's making some decisions about his future and so forth. And we had a good interaction about his possibilities and the options that he had in front of him. And when we got done, we said, well, let's, let's, let's pray uh, for the, the brother. And one of the, the other guys uh, leads out in prayer, and he basically says something like this. He says, Lord, we thank you for uh, our friend and the good opportunities are in front of him and so forth. And Lord, as he considers this option, I pray that you will lead, guide, and direct him in his decision making. Now think about that. Lead, guide, direct. Aren't those the same thing? But that's kind of how we talk, you know. I mean, we kind of, you know, we line up synonyms together. So in the New Testament, the Bible uses a variety of words to talk about the inner man. It talks in some places about the mind, some places talks about the heart, some places talks about the soul, some places talks about the spirit. But all four of those are just synonyms for the inner man. And the Bible talks about inner man issues and outer man issues. Or another way of putting it is, the Bible talks about thinking and behavior. The Bible talks about motives, or idols of the heart, what motivates us, and conduct. All right? And we saw from the doctrinal statement, what the scripture teaches is, it's our heart, that immaterial part of us, that really drives are thinking that leads to the behavior. Okay? That's why the scripture talks about a renewing of the mind, a renewing of the heart, a learning to think differently. Because if thinking doesn't change, behavior will not change long term. Sometimes people will change behavior just because of current pressures they're in or because they got in trouble and they're still stinging from it. And so they'll change their behavior for a little bit in response to that. But if the thinking doesn't change, the heart, inner man doesn't change, then the outer man will not change long term. 
So <clears throat> this is an important paragraph. A renovated mind is the key to change habits. Notice the last sentence as it talks about the mind. This is the real you that God sees and interacts with. Um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I've never told anybody. I've never said this publicly. Um, 1 Samuel 16, 17, uh, a while back, became uh, very challenging to me. The scripture says, um, God does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. You've, you've heard the phrase before. And at a point in time, um, I was, in my own growth, I uh, I thought, you know, I need to be thinking about that. And just recognize that God is really concerned about my heart. That's really the real me that is important to God. So I have used 1 Samuel 16, 7 as one of the passwords for one of my computers. And for me to get into one of my main computers that I use, or the computer I use most of the time, I got to type 1 Samuel 16, 7. That's just a reminder to me uh, that God looks at the heart. He's concerned about the outward man, but he's most concerned about your heart and my heart, the inner man. All right? Now, moving on. Number uh, five, Ephesians 4.23 is the scripture there for number four. Let's move on to number five. Renewed means to be rejuvenated or to be made youthful. Uh, in Ephesians 4.23, it says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And it means to be made youthful, to be... Re, um, really, it means it has the English word idea of being renovated. When I get to teach this in a counseling, I, I found it helpful to talk to people about, uh, let's say that you bought a home and some things need to be fixed up and you're going to renovate your kitchen. So if you renovate your kitchen, what would you do? Well, you get rid of the refrigerator, the stove, the dishwasher, take out the countertops, uh, pull off the wall treatment, um, take down the, the lighting fixtures and so forth. And when, when all that's in there right now is out, it's been renovated, right? No, it's an ugly mess then. But when the old is gone... And we have new flooring, new refrigerator, stove, dishwasher. We've got new cabinets, new countertops, new wall treatments, new ceiling treatments, new light fixtures. When the old is gone and new is in its place, it's been renovated. All right? That's the root idea with this word here. It means to be made youthful. Take what's old, be made youthful again. Or it means to be renovated. The important thing, the takeaway for you is... That renovation always involves significant change. All right? And what I have observed, the tendency of my own flesh and with some that I've counseled, is that when it comes to putting off the old man and putting on the new, our flesh has a way of resisting that kind of significant change. So the tendency with many of us at some points in our lives is to resist true renovation because it brings big time change. I mean, um, I think about that passage from Isaiah 55 where God says at one point that as far as the heavens are above the earth, 
so far are my ways above your ways. But when God is calling us to renovate our thinking, in effect, God is saying, well, come on up. I mean, he's calling us to big-time change in our thinking, our behavior, our motives. In our flesh, we tend to resist that, so we settle for remodeling. If you were to remodel a kitchen, what would you do? Well, you might take out the old refrigerator, buy a new one, clean up the old stove, you know, paint the ceiling, uh, maybe change, put a veneer over the countertops, change the hardware on the doors. When you remodel, it's the old made to look better. And the reason many of us find ourselves grappling with habits that are foes that have been there for a long time, and we keep saying, I need to change, I need to change there, is that in our approach to dealing with them, we've settled for remodeling. We've tried to just touch up our lives in some areas where we know things need to be different. But we've not gone through the the difficult, sometimes painful, the challenging work of truly being renovated in our thinking and disciplining ourselves for the purpose of righteousness. It means to be rejuvenated. And then look at number six. It talks about being renewed, renovated in the spirit of your mind. The spirit of the mind is that which gives the mind both its bent and its material of thought. So um, the the spirit of the mind, the the Greek terminology is there. What it means is it's just the the natural bent of of our mind, of our inner man. And God says we're to be renovated, drastically changed in the bent of our mind. So uh, I'd illustrate it this way. Uh, My guess is that there's several of you in the room who, if somebody had told you, you know, five, seven, ten years ago, that on a beautiful weekend in Northern California, you'd be choosing to get up and go to a Sunday school class or an adult Bible fellowship class at a church to listen to somebody talking from the Bible and then you stay and going to be a part of a worship service where they're singing about God and studying the Bible. If somebody told you 8, 10, 12 years ago you'd be doing that, you'd have had some choice language for them and probably a description of their family tree. But, uh, but here you are today by choice, happily so, And if that describes you, what that indicates is, is that the spirit of your mind has changed. Through justification and progressive sanctification, the bent of people's minds change. And we we come to a point where we now love things we used to hate. We now hate things we used to love. That's what it means about the spirit of the mind. The bent of the mind can change. I mean, hallelujah, praise God. That's progressive sanctification. Growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Our heart being transformed. Not just touched up a little bit, but we're actually changed at the very core of our being. So the things that we once loved, we now hate. The things we once hated, we now love. That's what it means to be changed in the spirit of your mind. And that's one of the things I would say to you as a biblical counselor is part of what energizes me for this important work of trying to help people that are struggling with the issues of life and living because uh, I'm able to say to them, look, we don't want to just rearrange your flesh. I mean, you realize 
that that is the best that any model of counseling can do apart from Jesus Christ. The very best that they can do is just rearrange the flesh. But through biblical counseling, through Jesus Christ and his word, people can be actually changed from the inside out in significant ways. All right, moving on. Number seven. God calls us to replace habits, not simply break them. Um, That's a key uh, thought. I encourage you to meditate on that. I think this is one reason why uh, New Year's resolutions usually fizzle out after four to six weeks. Because people are trying to, um, you know, change a habit. What God calls us to do is to replace habits, not simply break them. So he wants us to put off on habits, but we adopt new habits. And here's a, a key principle. We put off by putting on. Right? We put off sinful thoughts, habits, by putting on biblical habits. The tendency for me- many of us is to focus on our bad habits and say, I've got to quit doing that, I've got to quit doing that. Um, rather than focusing on putting on. Let me give you an illustration from a counseling experience. Uh, <clears throat> I had the privilege of working with a man who uh, came for counseling because of his struggles with sinful anger. He was a professed follower of Christ, but the way he handled his anger was definitely sinful and had been a lifelong habit. He had already been fired from a couple of jobs because of that, and uh, he's about ready to lose his second marriage because, largely because of his sinful anger. So he came, and when I asked him about how he had tried to handle it in the past and how he had been advised to kind of handle it from some previous counseling he'd received, he had been taught to just focus on the fact about not getting angry. And he talked about one uh, procedure he'd been taught, that when he goes to bed at night, he's to be saying to himself, I'm not going to get angry tomorrow. I'm not going to get angry tomorrow. I'm not going to get angry tomorrow. And then wake up in the morning and he starts going through the day saying, I'm not going to get angry today. I'm not going to get angry today. I'm not going to get angry today. And uh, that, of course, didn't work. And so as I explained to him some of the principles we're talking here about putting off the old man, putting on the new as a result of transformed thinking, uh, I took him to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And if your Bible's open there, just jump down to those verses. These are the last two verses of Ephesians chapter uh, 4. And verse 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now look at verse 31 again. There are six particular sins that God specifically says, let all of these be put away from you. Notice number two and number three in the list. Uh, The verse says, let all bitterness be put away from you, and then all wrath and all anger. The Bible uses two two words primarily to talk about about anger. The, The Greek word that's translated wrath there is the Greek word thumos. And uh, it refers to an explosive kind of um, handling anger. God has designed us, all of us, so that when we get angry, energy is generated. And that energy is going to find expression somehow. 
And with people that handle their anger through thumos, the, the energy goes out toward people or toward things. And they say things, hit, hit things, do things, but the energy generated by the anger is going out like that, okay? Thumas. And I'll, I'll give you a way that you can remember that. Uh, just think about a volcano. Then picture the volcano exploding while you say the word. Thumas. That's what it is. It's the energy generated by the anger is going out toward people, all right? And that's how the, the counselee I'm telling you about, that was his primary method of handling it. And that's what got him fired from two jobs, and he's in real difficulty with his marriage right now. But the other word says it's in the, uh, the New American Standard Version is translated anger. And this is a different Greek word. This is the Greek word orge. And orge, a person who handles their anger that way, the energy generated by anger is turned in on oneself. And when people handle their anger that way, they usually get real ouchy, and they're hard to live with, and um, uh, long-term, uh, they'll become, um, long, long-term they'll become bitter. You know, we have all kinds of words and phrases to talk about people that handle their anger through, uh, through orge. We talk about people who um, cop an attitude, who always seem to get up on the wrong side of the bed every day. People have a chip on their shoulder. I mean, those are all expressions to talk about somebody who's handling their anger through orge. And, and here's a way, if you want a way to remember how to separate them, just think about the Greek word orge and just think of, about saying it with just a little bit of emphasis. Orge. That's what it is. It's just the energy turned in on one side like that. All right? Now, the man I was telling you about a moment ago had been told, wake up every day saying, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry. That failed. Notice what the scripture says. In Ephesians 4.31, there are six sins. God says, get rid of all of these, two of which deal with anger. Look again at verse 32. It says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So in my counseling with this man, I taught him this principle. You put off the old man by putting on the new. You don't focus on what needs to be put off. You focus on what needs to be put on. So on my uh, homework assignment for him, I said, I explained, the Bible says be kind. That has a wide application. I mean, you can be kind to people you don't even know. I mean, after the services this morning, you may go out to a restaurant. You can hold the door open for somebody. You can let some, it's hard to think about. You can let somebody pull in front of you in traffic. Uh, but, uh, but, I mean, you can be kind to people you don't even know. Right? Just, just being polite, courteous, another way of talking about it. Then the Bible says we're to be tenderhearted. The word tenderhearted has a much more narrow application. And think about it. Out of the hundreds or thousands of people you may know, Right now, there are very few who are going through difficulty and heartache. But with those people, you respond to them like, I know you're going through heartache and difficulty. So for some of you going to work uh, tomorrow, you may go up to a fellow co-worker and say, Hey, Bill, uh, how's, your, how's your teenager get, coming along after that wreck? Is he healing up okay? Uh, the insurance company dealing with you all right? Anything I can do to help you with that tough situation. I mean, that's being tender. I mean, it's just, 
you're acknowledging the challenging that they're the challenge that they're facing and trying to help them. Then the third word is God says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Think about that. Uh, out of the hundreds or thousands of people you know, right now, there's very few people that are sinning against you. I mean, it's really a narrow application. And to forgive, the basic concept in forgiveness is a choosing to pass over and freeing the offender from the guilt of their sin and the repercussions, uh, freeing the person from the guilt of their sin. And so with the people that are sinning against you, I mean, there's very few applications, we're to be forgiving. In other words, we choose to pass over some of the sins that they commit uh, against us, unless they're flagrant, which would call for being uh, biblically rebuked. So with my counselee, here's my homework assignment. Every day this week, I want you to record five times when you were kind to people. Every day, I want you to recall two times when you were tender with somebody. One purpose out of obedience to Christ. And every day, I want you to record at least one time when you chose to forgive somebody when typically in the past, you would have given them a piece of your mind. But you chose just to pass over what they had done and go on. And what I showed this brother is this. You claim to be a follower of Christ. The more you become like Christ in being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, the more you become known for those three, the less you'll be known for anger. See the principle? You put off the old man. How? By putting on the new man. So think about that with relation to the habits that you're wanting to to deal with. The strategy is not just to focus, I'm going to work on this. No. What would be a better habit But the more that becomes a part of your life, that puts that off. Then, uh, uh, okay, I had one other comment I wanted to say. Uh, I just would conclude by hoping that this would give you uh, hope. And just that last one, putting off is the key to putting on, I think is very, very helpful. Now, we've got just a few minutes. We can do some Q&A time. What questions would you have? What do I need to clarify a little bit more? What else would be helpful? Hang on. Uh, Pastor, uh, Chris is bringing you the microphone. Oh, sorry. You know how it's really popular right now to hear um, you are not your thoughts? So then that is unbiblical? Yeah, I... I the okay. The question is um, about the popular saying is you're not your thoughts. You are I would, not your thoughts. Yeah, I would differ with that. Here's why: <clears throat> in Luke six forty five, it's at the end of a paragraph where Christ is talking about what's in the heart of man. And here's what Christ says in Luke six forty five: the good man out of the good things in his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil of his heart brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And what we say reveals what's going on inside. All right? And it reveals our thoughts. So in many ways, um, our thoughts are revealing what is truly in us. So, Anybody else? Yes, over here, sister in the back. 
Hang on just a minute there. There you go. Hopefully I can, I can say this right. What if the habit you're trying to break becomes exasperated by somebody either you live with or someone you work with? So it's like it's in your face all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, certainly you'd want to talk with a person. And um, if, you're, if the habit you're trying to incorporate or increase in your life is, is more like Christ, I would think in many cases people are going to welcome that. I mean, in most of our relationships... I'll just say it this way. In most of my relationships, what gets me in trouble is not my godliness. <laughs> it's my lack of godliness in certain areas. Um, but I need to balance that because in the next hour, I'm going to be preaching from Luke 14, a wonderful passage about how to deal with four groups of people who all uh, went against what Christ had to say. So there are times, especially in our world today, I mean, being Christ-like is going to invite the, the animosity of some. So I think this is part of where you have to choose to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. It's interesting, the scripture says that Christ was full of grace and truth. And we need to see that we're both, we have both in our life. We need to speak truth, but we can need to be full of grace as well. So, Janet? Okay, hang on just a minute. Uh, this good-looking guy is going to bring you a microphone. Hey, what are you doing later? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as you've been talking, a lot of this, you know, um, sanctification applies to a believer. So when you are taking these principles and talking to an unbeliever, do you just continually say you need to be transformed in your mind before any of this can happen? Yeah. Or where yeah. do you place the emphasis when you're trying to counsel somebody like yeah. that? Yeah, the, when you're dealing with a non-believer, the emphasis needs to be on justification and the person being born again. But, and again, in counseling, we need to talk about real, we believe real change is possible. And you don't have to go on living the way you have been. But for real change to take place, there needs to be a change in your heart. The way I do it in the counseling room, I like to counsel where I've got a whiteboard behind me. And what I like to do is after my data gathering, and I want to give the person hope and point them toward Christ, and, and like when I'm dealing with a non-believer, I will go to the left side of the chalkboard, and I will write the problems, and I will put a, a jagged circle around it. And then I'll go to the right side of the whiteboard, and I'll write the word answers. And I'll put a smooth ant- circle around that. And I say, okay, you've come to talk to me because you've got all these problems and my heart goes out to you. I mean, life is challenging for you right now. I'd like to help you with that. I want you to know that I am absolutely convinced there are answers to every one of the problems you've been telling me about. But you need to understand to go from here to here, you've got to go through. And then I go to the middle of the board and I draw my best door, put a knob on it and a couple hinges. And inside the door, I write Jesus Christ. And say, there are no lasting answers for the problems of life and living apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to help you learn more about who he is, why he came to earth. So I have them start reading in the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John was written particularly to bring people to faith in Christ. And in the Gospel of John, 
Christ makes seven I am statements that are fantastic. But in the Gospel of John also, there are seven profound miracles he does, what the Bible calls signs. And they escalate in difficulty. starts with turning the water into wine, which is pretty <laughs> amazing in itself, but it ends with the raising Lazarus from the dead. And then John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. And I have my counsel, you start memorizing John three sixteen to 18, and that's the passage I use primarily to evangelize them. But I'm always saying, change is possible, but it's got to start inside. You need a new heart. That's what Christ does. So, Okay. I think we're done, time-wise. Yes. Let's give a warm thank you again for Randy being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you all upstairs. <laughs>